1: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Unstoppable podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm back today with my favorite co-host and your favorite co-host to listen to, Matthew Gold. He's the CEO and founder at Unstoppable Domains. Today, we are here to talk to you about fixing the global financial system with crypto. We're going to be talking all about how crypto is going to have a really big impact on our global financial system and how it's going to increase productivity and prosperity for all people around the world, uh, and this is something that Matt is super passionate about and interested about. He has a lot of great things to say, so I'm very excited to have him here with me today to talk to me more about this and educate me more about, you know, some some of the things that are broken in our current financial system and some of the ways that crypto can really improve this for everybody moving forward. So, welcome, Matt. Thanks so much for joining me with this episode.
0: I'm glad to be here. Uh, it's an exciting topic. We've got lots to cover. We'll try to do it justice.
1: Awesome. So I think a good place to start is at a very high level. Let us start from the basics. What What is money? What is it used for? Uh, let, let's just start there.
0: There's a couple of things that people use money for, and one is just to uh, save, right? And you put your if you uh, go and you make a wage, and then you spend everything, and you've got some left over, you use your dollars to store it. You don't store money as uh, finished products or like. Uh, or for anything, for barter or anything like that, we switched over from using uh, those types of physical goods to store wealth to using money in a lot of cases. And when it's used like that, it money is being used as a reserve asset. Then the other thing that we use money for is in trade. Uh, so we use money to make it a lot easier for people to agree on a price for things. And it's called the coincidence of wants. And basically what that means is, it's a lot easier for us to come to an agreement or some sort of contract if we have a standard uh, pricing system across the economy um, so that I can say, hey, how much, you know, per hour are you gonna charge me for doing this? And you can say 35 bucks and then we can both say, great, we know how much that is, we can agree to it, we can sign it. Uh, And then I can hire you no matter where you live on the planet. It's great for trade and it's great as a reserved asset. And those are the two primary use cases for money.
1: And so when money first began, it wasn't uh, the fiat currency that we know about today. It was gold. And so what was was gold all about? Like what, what was the gold standard?
0: Yeah. And there's actually a lot of people who debate like the origins of money. There's people who wrote books on that. And that's for a different podcast. In our most recent history, uh, we've had essentially two different ways of running the global economy. And one of those was the gold standard uh, that was before the 1970s. And the gold standard has gone in and out of fashion you know, several times over the past several hundred years, or even gold's been around for thousands of years. But in the modern monetary system, it's gone in and out of fashion. And then the other one that we live by is the dollar uh, standard. And these things could not be more different. <laughs> and it's just kind of interesting to me as Americans you know, we're in the U.S. and we view them interchangeably. Uh, and that's not the case so much elsewhere. Like internationally, people understand that there's a difference between holding gold and holding dollars. But here in the U.S., everything's priced in dollars uh, and no one really thinks about owning gold. I mean, some people do, but it's not a very popular thing to do to store your wealth that way because the dollar's just been a reasonable currency to uh, use for buying investment products or, you know, goods. So it's functioned both as a reserve currency and then also as a, a trade currency.
1: This is probably different for every country, but let's just speak to the U.S. at least. When did we switch from gold to fiat, the U.S. dollar, and why?
0: So the big switch actually happened during the Nixon presidency. There were a lot of considerations for why we had to go off uh, the gold standard. But it basically came down to the United States didn't have enough money. (laughs) We didn't have enough gold to back up all the dollars that we had created. And there was a whole bunch of different things that came together. And basically, our government had been spending way more money than it had. Uh, We had all these external world wars that we were fighting. Um, There were issues with the economy not performing as well as it could. And so the choice for the politicians was actually like, do I have to raise taxes and cause a recession and make a lot of voters angry at me? Or uh, can I just let us go off this gold standard and then devalue dollars internationally? And now I'm spreading out the pain, not only to U.S. consumers, but also to international holders of dollars. Um, and maybe it's a little less painful for us as a country to go that way. And that's ultimately uh, what we did. And at the time, it was radical. Nobody knew if it would work or not. And people were actually wondering, like, hey, if the United States is not backed by gold anymore, you know, will people still take it? And it turns out that if your currency is not backed by gold, but you have the world's largest military, that that is a good substitute. Uh, and that worked for us in the United States. Um, starting in the 1970s to kind of establish it as a global trade currency, even though it was no longer pegged uh, to the gold standard, where you could actually change in a set amount of dollars for a set amount of gold.
1: Okay. And so when we compare gold with fiat currency, what are some of the pros and cons to using each?
0: Okay. So there's a lot here. I'm going to try to highlight what I think are some of the the more important ones. So one of the great things about gold, and I should actually... Uh, abstract this a little bit. So gold is a hard asset, meaning there's only a limited supply. So if everyone agrees on having a hard mm-hmm. asset as the like reserve asset for trading with each other, everyone can feel pretty confident that the value of that is going to stay the same or go up over time. So everyone chose gold because it was pretty easy to ship around and a high value, a dense last forever type thing. And so gold was the product that we decided to use as that reserve asset prior to the 1970s. What this did was it acted as like a break or a constraint on anybody in the system getting too far out of whack. So like I was saying earlier, the United States had racked up too much debt and was in a bad financial position and they couldn't afford to pay people back with gold. If they had chosen to pay people back with gold, That meant that they would have that the United States would have had to made some changes in the way that its economy was structured. And what are those changes? Well, we would have had to become more productive. Uh, Interest rates would have gone up. Uh, We would have taken less risky loans. Uh, We would have had to invest in ourselves, increase our personal savings rates. All sorts of demographic things would have happened in the United States economy. In order to make us more responsible, essentially, you know, small business, everyone would be, you know, like essentially running better balance sheets, uh, like their home economic balance sheets that you're taught in eighth grade home ed class. And because instead we chose, oh, we're not going to go on gold standard, we are allowed to be much more irresponsible with with our spending. So one thing that's really good about having a hard currency standard is that all these countries or all these different groups that trade with each other, nobody can get too far out of whack. Okay, so that's step one. So, okay, what else is happening? Well, I just said that things can get out of whack on a fiat currency standard. What do I mean by things getting out of whack? Well, if you look at the United States right now, we have a tremendous amount of debt spending. And there are other countries around the world too, who have this problem. Um, And what's also interesting in the United States, if you look at like the middle of the country, there's a lot of people who are unemployed, a lot of factories that have gone out of business. And uh, there's a a lot of opportunity that's been shipped overseas and we've kind of decimated our supply chains. And so like, how is it possible that uh, we have, uh, we're buying all these things from these other countries where at the same time, we have all these people here who could be making them. And, you know, why hasn't the global economy adjusted to make that shift? Well, because we're no longer required to be financially disciplined by having a hard money asset. We're allowed to issue a bunch of financial products in order to borrow money to buy more goods from other countries like China. Uh, instead of instead of if we were on a hard currency standard, we wouldn't be able to do that because our uh, we w- we just wouldn't be able to issue more debt, uh, and we would have to produce these things internally. So the second thing that that happens when you're not on a hard currency standard is because you don't have the financial discipline in, instilled by a hard money uh, asset, you can finance huge changes in your economy by borrowing from others that result in things like uh, certain sectors of your economy being overlooked. And in the United States, it's our manufacturing industry. Basically, we sold sold out our entire manufacturing base across the middle half of the country, shifted over to these other countries and just use our, went to Wall Street and wrote some bonds, borrowed some money and then, and then bought it back. So that's the second thing that I think is really bad uh, is that it w- it leads to global trade imbalances. Uh, which affect real people in real life. There's a lot of unemployed people in the United States today uh, because of our, the way that our gold monetary system is structured. So, and then thirdly, and this is the last one, and this is me putting on my libertarian hat, it's that we you get wacky uh, incentives in the economy. And specifically, you get wacky interest rate incentives. And we're going to touch on this a little bit later, potentially. Uh, but one of the things that I just like to point out to people is that I think the interest rate right now to borrow for the country of India is three and a half percent. And the interest rate for me on my mortgage is 2.65%. And like, you don't have to be a genius to think that it's kind of weird that an individual in the US can borrow money at a lower rate than a country the size of India with 1 billion people. Um, And this is because uh, these out of whack financial incentives have uh, resulted in this weird interest rate regime where people in wealthy rich countries have access to financial capital at much lower rates than people everywhere else across the world. and it leads to, uh, you know, unfair incentives, which ultimately decrease productivity globally. So basically, the future happens slower because people are incentivized to do the wrong thing uh, with, with the current uh, fiat standards. So that was a long answer for uh, the difference between uh, gold and other hard money standards. And I think we can have a Bitcoin hard money standard or an Ethereum hard money standard or a name your cryptocurrency hard money standard works just as well as long as it's hard money. And that's the difference between a hard money standard and then our our fiat system that we currently are running.
1: Yeah, we'll we'll get to the Bitcoin or the crypto piece of it. But another thing I want to talk about is inflation. Okay, so this is obviously, you know, something that, I think a phrase that everybody has uttered at some point in their lives is, remember back in whatever year when this only costs whatever? So, like, we just got a car last summer because we live in the city. There's, like, no need for a car. So we haven't had a car in, like, 10 years and just got one. And I was trying to find a car wash, which is, like, impossible to find in the city. But the car wash was, like eight bucks or something, which I guess is like pretty standard nowadays. But I remember when I was in high school and drove a car, it w- like you could get a $1 car wash anywhere. Like that, that wasn't even cheap. That was just like the standard. And so I was like, remember when car washes were only a dollar, you know, or like back when uh movie theaters were still a thing, you know, pre-COVID times and we'd go see a movie. Movies cost like 20 bucks now or something. You get like an assigned seat, like the seat reclines. It's like super fancy. And I was like, remember when movie th- movies cost like a dollar fifty and they were all super dingy and like cr- like you know just like scary places to be but like awesome because it costs a dollar fifty why does inflation happen why why are things getting more and more expensive and like is this ever gonna end like is there a light at the end of the tunnel or are we just always gonna to be faced with this things are getting more and more expensive for the rest of our lives
0: yeah so I will say there is no light at the end of the tunnel as long as we continue to use the current uh, money system which we're doing now. And just so people know, we've only been on this money system that we're currently using since uh, the 70s. So it's only been around for 50 years, right? So so don't let people trick you into thinking that these things can't change. And that money system that ended in the 1970s was actually established in 1910. So that one only lasted for 60 years. So these monetary regimes, they change every 50 years. And like the reason they change is because they typically break. And uh, like I said, that we changed in 1970s because the U.S., we had our we were funding the Vietnam War among other things and had domestic problems, um, and it's because we had a lot of problems that the system was forced to change. And unfortunately, I think we're going to have the same thing or mean a similar thing. Like this system is going to change uh, because we have uh, because we have problems. And here we are in the pandemic. And I would say, fortunately, though, on the positive note, we'll get to it. I think crypto is an outlet um, for for that potentially going that making it an easier transition and a much better transition. We'll get to that. Okay, so yes, I think things are gonna keep getting more expensive. Uh, The one that strikes me, well, there's two. One, I'm a fast food junkie. So I remember dollar menus used to be a thing. And I I would go and I'd spend three or four bucks and I would be full. And if I go and eat fast food now, I'm spending 13 to $20. And that's a lot of money, money to spend on fast food. But, you know, I'm eating the same amount. I'm the same human. Uh, and I was actually younger and eating more back then. So I'm actually eating less now and spending three or four times more. The other one is gasoline. And uh, my wife will tell you this. I complain about this every time I go to the pump. Why is gasoline creeping up on $4 and $5 in some places, depending where you live. Gas was hmm, 79 cents, 50 cents. When I was in high school, I can't remember. I could fill the whole tank for, with a 20 and like have some change left over. Uh, so gasoline, I, and we're in the middle of a pandemic where last year, at least demand's picking up again now, but last year demand was down. Everything was down and we still had really high gas prices. Um, so no, I don't think this is going to stop. And I think that it's ultimately you know, it's gonna it's gonna just keep happening as long as we're on this uh, regime. Uh, I do think it's bad for everyone, and it's actually you know, inflation is really complicated at at one level. If you want to know, if you're trying to predict what the inflation rate is gonna be, you're gonna have a hard time because it it, it is dependent on both supply and demand. You got like it's how much do people want, plus how many dollars are there available. But over the long run, I actually think inflation is quite simple, and it's just how many dollars are there, right? You know, divided by the number of goods, and uh, and if there's and if you make twice as many dollars, and and then you have the same size economy, then things are going to uh, tend to be twice as expensive. Like that, it should just kind of gravitate towards that over time as everything kind of. Gets sorted out and, it, and it's dependent on demand and the supply. So it doesn't work perfectly. And just a real quick example there let's say that we have an economic shock, like a pandemic. So you know, the economy is at 100, there's a pandemic, all of a sudden economic productivity or economic output drops by 30%. So now we're at only 70%. If you print 30% more money on top or whatever to add up, so we get back to 100, right? So now you're still at 100, you're fine. But if you keep that money in the system and then the economy grows back to where it was, uh, you're going to be in a situation where now prices are going to be higher. And so that's kind of what we just saw in this pandemic. But it's in the U.S. and other countries with the current fiat system, we've just kept printing money at every time we have any kind of crisis. And, and then we leave that money in the system, and that's just going to make prices higher tomorrow than they are today. So I believe that empirically, just based on what I've seen, uh, willing to have economists argue that point. But for real world people, Look at the prices in 1970, in 1980, in 1990, in 2000, 2010, and look at prices today. They're up and to the right.
1: Another thing that I found to be really interesting and surprising as I was researching for this episode is that the rate at which our wages have been going up, is a lot less than the rate at which inflation goes up. And so, okay, if you were like, well, inflation goes up X percent a year, but then our wages go up X plus 1% a year, then I'm like, okay, fine. Like maybe I can accept inflation being a thing forever. But if inflation is going up X percent and then our wages are going up X minus, you know, however many percent, then I'm sort of not okay with that because, uh, you know, then essentially like everybody is going to feel like they're getting poorer and poorer, and things are costing more than they're able to afford, and you know that's sort of scary to think about long term. Like as the gap widens more and more between the rate at which inflation goes up and the rate at which our wages go up, so uh, you know what's up with that?
0: Yeah, and as a as a millennial, you've experienced that, right? Because you're not in as good a position, uh, or at least your generation is not as good as a position as their parents were. I'm not exactly the wording, but I think some people refer to it as like a you know silent tax on people because over time it does, it, it does. It, it pushes up the prices for everything but labor. That's actually kind of a weird outcome of uh, how investing works. And what happens is, is when new money is created in the system, the people who get access to the money first are people who already have uh, assets. And then what they're able to use that money for is to fund... Uh, new businesses and uh, new capital, or they can buy existing capital before anybody else does and and then earn higher returns as the value of that capital goes up because now there's more money in the system. So uh, what I'm trying to say is when new money enters into the system, it's not going to your pocket. Now, we had an exception to this last year when they mailed checks to people, right? And everybody likes getting mailed checks in the mail. Uh, But like that was like the first time in history where they created new money uh, and then they actually put it into the pockets of normal consumers first, like because you got that check like a week later if you had direct deposit set up, and so that's pretty quick. But typically, what happens is when new money is made, the first person who gets that new money are uh, you know landlords and and uh, people who own a bunch of real estate property or big business owners, and then they can use that money to buy up a bunch of different assets and then create new investments, and that's and so that's why you'll see the stock market go up. Uh, you see real estate uh, prices going up to the right, and you see all sorts of uh, esoteric assets like art go up and to the right uh, as new money is created in these systems first. And what does that do is it just makes people who already had art, real estate, and stocks even more wealthy, and then they can eat, use that additional wealth to buy even more assets. So the reason why wages don't go up as fast as, um, as capital assets is because when new money is created, it goes to people with capital assets first. They use that money to buy more capital assets, which pushes up capital assets prices. Uh, and, then, and then their original amount of money is worth even more, which they then use to buy even more capital assets. So you get like this, you get this nice little cycle of, of uh, housing, for instance, going up in value, and then people borrowing money against that housing to buy more housing, which then pushes it up in value. So you have this like recursive feedback loop on the capital side that labor just doesn't get. And and labor just becomes more and more desperate because the prices of everything they buy are going up. And they can't get a toehold. Like the number of people in the United States who own stocks is actually quite low. Like the percentage of people who own 90% of the stocks, it's a very small portion of people. And then the number of people who can afford to get houses is also um, at an all-time low, I believe. It's like a 50-year all-time low right now. Even though people, are, everyone's going out and trying to buy a house right now, uh, the, the percentage of homeowners is uh, lower than it normally is because the prices are higher. So these people are getting uh, cut out of even getting on that financial treadmill for improving their lives.
1: Sort of like another side note, too, is another stat I found is that since we switched from gold to fiat, which was, what did you say, 50 years ago or so, productivity in the labor force has increased 250%, but wages have only increased 30%. And so I think this is like the classic burnout that everybody has probably experienced at some point in their lives you know, maybe can also partially, at least partially be blamed for the increase of people suffering from mental health issues nowadays, as, as compared to 50 years ago. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was interesting as well. And very surprising uh, when I found out about that.
0: Yeah. And there were some good books about this talking about how, and I think it's Piketty, uh, but they're talking about how the people who are getting the advantage of all this productivity increase, because if you think about it, if um, the people working for you are, are 250% more productive, like 2.5x better, then shouldn't they be paid 2.5x more, right? Or or something, right? Like maybe there should be some distribution there. Um, but what you're pointing out is that they're only being paid 30% more, even though they're two and a half times, you know, 250% more productive. So what's happening is because capital is just advantaged in capital in capitalist systems, uh, capital is capturing a much, much, much larger share. And it's not real capital. Um, What do I mean by real capital? I mean, like it's this created funny money that they're printing more dollars into the system and they're using that created money to uh, spend on more uh, capital assets uh, to increase productivity and then capturing the majority of that return and not giving very much uh, to labor. Whereas if they are subject to a real interest rate, they may not have that same, they may not be getting that much of, they may not be getting the majority of those increases. Um, because they would have to pay higher interest rates on their capital. Uh, I'll try that one more time. What I'm trying to say is because the U.S. government is printing a bunch of dollars, they're keeping the price for borrowing money really low because if there's more dollars, then it's my my mortgage is 2.65%, right? So like they're making the price of capital really cheap. So as a capitalist who deploys that capital, I'm getting a lower interest rate than is natural. So because I get that lower interest rate, I'm able to keep a higher percentage of the returns on that asset. So I I would, I would potentially say that that could be contributing to that because we give this subsidy to people who make investments, they end up getting more of the pie than they would get otherwise. And the worst part is they didn't earn that subsidy. That's the part that's upsetting. Totally fine with capitalists making return on capital. That's great. That's the incentive structure at work. But the problem is, is that the, the interest rates they're paying for that capital is a lot lower than it should be.
1: Basically, what you're saying is that people with assets benefit from the system and then everybody else doesn't.
0: That is a very and, and I don't think anyone would disagree. Like if you if you just look out there, like it feels it feels wacky. And this comes from somebody who has assets. And, you know, even even just within my own family and friend groups, um, I mean, it's uh, it is incredible. The difference that being able to have, um, you know, just a have it have stocks, have real estate what that can do to you over a very short 10, 15 year period, uh, you just end up shooting way, way far ahead of all of your peers um, in terms of wealth.
1: Yeah, so now that we've had this sort of uh, very depressing conversation about everything that's wrong in the system, let's talk about crypto and Bitcoin. You alluded to this earlier, but let's go deeper into why is crypto the solution to all of these problems?
0: I'll be careful here because it's not going to solve all the problems. And I'm sure crypto is gonna create a few problems, but the thing that it does is it's going to instill discipline into the financial system that we haven't had in a long time. So what happens is if there's a way for normal everyday people to buy hard money assets like crypto assets like bitcoin and it's super easy. You know, you can just do it from your cell phone in your living room and you can or you can even do it at, you know, Charles Schwab or Coinbase or wherever you buy your crypto. If it's super easy for you to do that, What's going to happen is people are going to realize that, hey, uh, it's a good idea for me to hold some of this crypto hard assets because it's going to keep up with the pace of prices of everything else. And not only is it going to keep up, it's probably going to actually increase in value. Um, And this is not financial advice by any means. Uh, This is just I would conjecture that crypto is probably going to increase in value faster than the rate of overall inflation because crypto is a extremely hard asset. And what I mean by that is like, Bitcoin is a supply cap of 21 million. There's only ever gonna be 21 million Bitcoin and there's not gonna be one more than that. Uh, there's no way to like make an extra one or something like that. You can always build another house or you know, if, if real estate prices go up, there's gonna be new housing supply that comes in, uh, but that's not the case with Bitcoin. So normal people are gonna to say to themselves, aha, I don't wanna save my money in the bank account anymore. Like, I don't want to earn 0% interest. Remember, I was mentioning earlier, U.S. government is keeping interest rates low, right? And this is great for investors, uh, but this really hurts normal people saving. And the problem is, like, if you're a normal person, you only got $1,000. If you put it in your savings account, they're going to give you 0% interest, and there's nothing you can do to do better than that. But if instead you buy this hard money asset, Bitcoin, you can feel confident that Bitcoin is going to keep up with the rate of inflation over time. Because you know in the long run that if they print twice as much dollars then there's only 21 million bitcoin bitcoin will should stabilize at a price twice what it is this is just theoretically uh and that's what we've seen over the past 10 years so i view it as an outlet for normal people to uh, express their opinion about not wanting to be a part of the current financial system that's not advantaging them that's taking that's actually taking advantage of them so that's why i think crypto is great and the other cool thing is It's global. And so earlier we were saying we're just going to focus on the U.S. But, you know, in the U.S., we have the system where they're devaluing our dollars, which is bad for us. But we also get access to the dollar as uh, to borrow in the dollars, which is a huge privilege, Uh, super cheap. Um, And people who can get housing loans or car loans. The interest rates are really low to borrow that stuff in the U.S., and that's because the, the dollar is accepted globally as a reserve asset. So American consumers benefit from it. So we have benefit from having a great dollar here in the U.S., and we also have the loss from it being inflated away. So our gas prices going up, just like everyone else. But if you live in another country, right, you get none of the benefit. Uh, so like you have no benefit from really low dollar loans, uh, but you have all of the negatives of uh, this inflation. And so I think for you uh, in another country, it's a very simple decision to uh, store your wealth for for your savings in crypto.
1: And then just because we had that whole conversation about labor and wages, how will crypto impact labor and wages and productivity overall?
0: Yeah, so this is kind of an interesting side note. Um, And I I don't think enough people have thought about this yet. But if you have a, a new, easy to store global hard asset that anyone can put their money in, what that means is that as investors out there, they're going to say to themselves, "Okay, I want to invest my money. Uh, am I going to, you know, invest it in this new factory or this new company or whatever, or do I want to just store it for um, the future because I'm not really certain about making investments today?" Uh, and the problem, and they could buy Bitcoin. <laughs> and right now, <laughs> before Bitcoin, their choice was, "I can invest in this factory or this new real estate project or something, or I could buy U.S. Treasury bonds that earn one." percent interest, the, where the interest rates are depressed. So what that meant was as financial advisors, their choices were earn really low interest rates, which don't really make sense, or invest in these uh, projects, some of which are quite risky. Um, and those are really their own choices. Now they have a third choice, which is buying a global reserve asset like Bitcoin um, that it, that is perfectly inflation hedged, even, even better than gold has ever been. Uh, and so when they choose that third option, uh, or the Bitcoin act option, plan B. Uh, it's going to force everywhere on the planet to at least perform as good as Bitcoin, as an asset. So if, you, if you're if you making an investment in, in a company or real estate project or anything else you're thinking of doing, you're always going to think to yourself, can this investment do better than just parking my money in uh, Bitcoin? And if it can't, then why would you invest in it? It's not worth it, right? Risk adjusted. So what that's going to do, it's going to force real interest rates back up. And we have, like I mentioned earlier, we have artificially suppressed interest rates in the economy to a really low level uh, by printing a lot of dollars. And cryptocurrency all of a sudden makes it so there's an exit door. So you no longer have artificially suppressed uh, interest rates, in my opinion. Uh, so what does that have to do with productivity? Well, uh, what it does is... Is it forces every project that gets investment money to be productive. Uh, and that's not the case today. Because right now, if I can borrow money at 2% and then I can buy an asset, let's say that asset is earning 3%, but inflation is running at 4%, that that asset or in that investment project I actually made is actually losing 1% year over year in, in real value, right? But it's actually gaining 1% year over year. Versus the amount that I'm paying the loan for. So as an investor, I can make I have this weird situation where I can make an investment that is actually negative, in real in real world terms, but is positive for me, the investor, because my interest rate is even lower than that. Uh, And and what I think crypto hard money standards do. Is they get rid of all those projects and that's not a small number of of investments right now there are a lot of people i know and that you'd probably know and they buy just gobs of real estate because their interest rates are so low and that doesn't mean that the returns on that real estate's good and sometimes the returns on the real estate's bad and they even lose money every month paying the mortgage payment on it but they just know that the price of the real estate is going to go up next year so they buy it anyway and that what kind of sense does that make why would i want to buy an investment asset that's losing money And if I'm only thinking it's going to go up in value, that's the only reason why I'm buying it. Well, (laughs) the only kind of world that makes sense is if the interest rate that investors are paying is actually lower, or sorry, the interest rate that the investors are paying is lower than the returns that investors are getting, but that's still lower than the real interest rate in the world. So we have this situation where we're on the wrong side of the interest rate curve. When we move over so that's no longer available, that means the only type of investments we'll be able to make are ones that are actually productive, real-world productive. And when that happens you'll get higher productivity rates. So one other fact that most people maybe not know is that since 1970, the productivity rate has actually been growing uh, slower than it did historically. If you look back at the productivity rate in the 50s and 60s, the US was booming. And like, it was totally normal to have 3 to 5% uh, GDP growth in those years. Uh, and the productivity rate would be running at 25 And if you look at it since 1990, people have been, or or since, sorry, 1970, uh, people have been complaining. Productivity rate is growing too slow. We're only at 1%. So it's about half of what it was before. And the amount of money that people are making is less because the GDP, the the whole economy is not growing as fast, real GDP. So we're making less money and we're growing slower because we have malinvestment, because we have uh, artificially low interest rates which are just benefiting people who already have a bunch of assets, which also creates a bunch of social problems. So I would, when I say that, I think that crypto uh, has a chance to make a global impact that's significant. I mean, it's going to be trillions of dollars significant compounded over uh, the over 50 year time period. So, you know, and if you can save trillions of dollars in GDP from malinvestment, every year over a 50-year period, and that money can be reinvested in making the economy more productive. Um, Even if it's a 1% change over a 72-year period, you will double the size of the global economy income every year. And right now, if the global economy income is $100 that means I'm saying over a 70-year time period, crypto could double that output all else held constant just by getting rid of all this malinvestment we have, and people would be making an extra double their money every year because of those those changes. So, sorry, that was uh, my soapbox. I uh, went off there for a little bit.
1: No, I was going to say, are you running for president in the next election? Because I'm just going to write your name in if if you're not on the ballot. <laughs> ha.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and you mentioned something there about politics, and I think it's actually kind of interesting because one of the things I really like about this is that it's a technical solution to uh, what has become a political problem. And, you know, what happened is, is we had a situation before where uh, we were trusting, you know, our, our authorities, our central government to be a good economic steward. And it turns out that they run for office every two to four years. And so they're going to do what helps them get votes. But that's not always aligned with what's best for everybody. You know, sometimes you got to take your medicine and they and they just keep putting it off instead printing this money. And um, so this is the situation we ended up in. But we came up and this is the beauty of what uh, Bitcoin and Satoshi invented uh, is that, Here's a way for us to solve this problem as a community uh, without having to take on these political figures you know directly. We can actually just opt into another system by expressing our own freedom of choice. and it's competing out there in the free market. And the truth is if uh, you know the US dollar or any of these other currencies is under threat from uh, cryptocurrencies, then they can just start doing a better job managing their economies and their currencies. Um, and, you know, providing real interest rate returns for investors, and people will move right back out. I mean, I guarantee you, if the 30-year was paying 5%, right, uh, in the United States right now, that uh, Bitcoin would not be nearly as high as it is, right? <laughs> because investors would say, I don't want to hold Bitcoin that doesn't earn a return when I could earn 5% on my on my T-bill. And then and they would also think to themselves, the US government is, is doing a responsible thing with its economy. Um, and, and so they would feel more confident about the future, uh, but we're not. And, and so this is an option for everyone to get out of it. And the other thing that I like, again, anybody on the planet. So it's uh, it, it is a people first, not a bankers first initiative. And that's why I think it's important to tell people, get out there, Download a wallet uh, and participate in the new economy uh, because it was made for you.
1: Love it. Love it. All right. Well, you, you heard it here first from Matthew Gold. Uh, thanks so much for breaking that down for us. And hopefully we do see more and more people adopt crypto and we see this become the norm and we're able to fix a lot of the global financial issues that we see today. So thanks so much for joining me for this episode and for um, sharing your insights with us. I I hope you all learned something new. I certainly did. And uh, thanks for tuning into the Unstoppable podcast. And we'll be back again soon with another episode. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you, and thanks again for listening.